Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. Wherever Paul and Barnabas went, they were always preaching the gospel, always scattering gospel seed, and it should be the same with us. Where we pick up in our reading today, Paul and Barnabas are doing exactly that in the city of Lystra. They are preaching and ministering to people in the name of Jesus. In the course of their work, Paul and Barnabas stumble upon a man who is crippled, and they determine to help him. As Christians, we understand that not only are we to speak the gospel with our mouths, but we are to show the love of Christ in hands-on ways by ministering to people's needs. That's what Jesus modeled for us in his ministry. That's what the apostles model in our text today. If you recall, chapter 14 and verse 3 says that God granted signs and wonders to be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. In other words, God gave Paul and Barnabas the power to do miracles, which bore witness to, or we might say gave credibility to, the message that they preached. Where we pick up reading today, we see one such miracle. The Apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculously heals a crippled man. But the result of that healing and what follows next, no one could have guessed. Let's begin reading, and today we will make three important observations from this passage. We'll start by reading verses 8 through 13. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and he walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes And we'll pause right there. Our first observation today is this. There is a tendency in our fallen nature to worship men rather than God. As we begin to discuss this, let's first of all establish this universal truth. All people are by nature worshipers. All people worship someone or something. This impulse to worship is a good instinct instilled in us by our Creator for the purpose of worshiping Him. That's why it feels so good to come to church and worship God. When we worship the true and living God, we are doing what we were literally made to do. Unfortunately, what man often does in our sin nature is substitute lesser things for God, worshiping people and things we ought not worship rather than God in heaven who alone is worthy of our worship and praise. You say, Josh, I don't worship other things. I don't worship false gods. I don't worship idols. I don't have any little little gold statues in my house that I bow down to and, and pray to. The problem is that our worship of false gods is usually not that obvious. The reality is that anytime we make anything or anyone 
a higher priority than God in our life, that object, that person, in essence, becomes an idol. They become a false god and that our interaction with that object or with that person essentially becomes worship. John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. Because we are worshipers by nature, we are really good at making idols of just about anything and everything. We make an idol out of our hobbies. We make an idol out of sports. We make an idol out of sex. We make an idol out of food. We even make idols out of people. For instance, did you know that you can make your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend into an idol? If they become more important to you than God, that's exactly what they are. You can make your children or grandchildren into little runny-nosed idols. If they become the center of your universe to the point that you are putting them ahead of your commitment to God and the church, that's exactly what they've become. You can even make pastors and preachers into idols. I have been guilty of this very thing at times. There are certain preachers that I have put on a pedestal where in my heart I lifted them up to a position that they did not belong. As I've gotten to know some of those men, I realize they put their pants on one leg at a time just like the rest of us. They too are sinners saved by grace. They are God's servants to be certain, but they are not God. Furthermore, it is good and healthy for me to hear God's word preached from other men besides them because I'm not there to hear them, or I shouldn't be. I'm there to hear from God through his word, whoever the human vessel may be. If a certain man has to be preaching in order for me to attend or to listen, that's a good indicator that I have exalted that person to a place that they should not be. Now, how does all of this tie into our passage today? We see in verses 8 through 10 that a miracle takes place through the man of God. Paul comes across a man who is crippled in his feet and has been since birth. He's never walked a day in his life. As Paul is preaching about Jesus, he's kind of keeping an eye on this guy. Verse 9 says that he's observing him intently. And in Paul's observation, he can tell this crippled man is with him. He's listening. He believes the gospel. This man has faith in Jesus. So Paul just looks at him as we read and with authority says, stand up straight on your feet. And it says that the man leaped and walked. God did an awesome miracle in that man's life. Not Paul, the Holy Spirit, God. Now, does God always work that way? Where he immediately, miraculously heals us? No, we know that's not true, don't we? We know that for his own sovereign purposes, he often allows us to go through suffering in this life. Sometimes he doesn't heal us until we get to heaven. At the same time, we would be well served to remember God can heal us fully and completely anytime he wants, just like this man in our text. Our God can do anything, and he is still in the miracle working business. Now, you would think that the miraculous healing of this man would be the main emphasis of this passage. I mean, how could it get any better than this? But because of what happens next, his healing is almost a side note in the passage. 
What happens next is where we come to our main emphasis today. How did the people respond when they saw that a miracle had taken place? Did they praise God and and give him the glory? Did they pray and sing to the true and living God, thanking him for what he had done in the life of this man? No, it's not what they did at all. What we see in these verses is that the people began to worship Paul and Barnabas. They actually say in verse 11, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. This crowd actually believes that Barnabas and Paul are the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. King James uses their Roman names, Jupiter and Mercury. The people bring oxen and and garlands, wreaths of flowers to the city gates, intending to make sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. We read this and we think, these crazy people, what are they doing? Don't they realize that, that God deserves their worship? Not Paul and Barnabas, that's insane. But we need to be very careful in pointing the finger at them Because you and I can be guilty of doing the exact same thing. We too can be guilty of looking at something that God has done and giving credit to the human vessel that he used to do it. It's like looking at a beautiful painting and and giving credit to the paintbrush instead of the artist. It's actually pretty silly when you think about it. And applying this principle to our own church, we can look at Selmore, we can be thankful for the growth that we've seen over the years and the wonderful ministries taking place and the lives that have been touched and all the people that are here, new and old. Well, folks, the, the glory for that does not go to the pastor, nor does it go to the staff, nor does it go to any individual or group of people in the church. The praise and the glory go to God and to him alone. He doesn't share that with anybody. So yes, we are thankful for God's servants. It's, it's good to appreciate them and recognize them, but we must be oh so careful that we do not lift up any man in our hearts to the extent that we make him an idol and exalt him to a place that he does not belong. In our fallen nature, we tend to do this, not only with preachers, but with other people as well. We must resist this, this temptation. We must repent of it when God reveals it to us, and we must worship God alone, never man. Now, how will Paul and Barnabas react to the people's response to them? How will they react to this treatment that they're receiving, being worshiped as though they are gods? Let's read on and we'll find out. Verses 14 through 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes And they ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Observation number two, only God is worthy of our worship. Only God. Paul and Barnabas react in horror at the way the people are worshiping them. This is how we should expect righteous men to react 
when they receive the worship that only God is rightfully due. Beware those preachers who not only receive the worship of men, but seemingly bask in it and encourage it. Something is badly amiss in their heart. We see Paul and Barnabas' horror in verse 14 when it says they tear their clothes. This was a way in their culture of showing extreme agony and just overall a state of being distraught. And they basically ask the people, what are you doing? Why are you doing these things? And then they proceed to give them some reasons why they should be worshiping God and not man. And I want to go over these reasons this morning as a reminder to us as to why only God is worthy of our worship. First, and we touched on this a while ago, human leaders are men just like us. In verse 15, Paul and Barnabas say, we also are men with the same nature as you. In other words, they're telling them, we're not gods, we're just guys. Even our spiritual heroes have feet of clay. Even our spiritual heroes are sinners saved by grace who have their own sins that they struggle with. As such, there will be times that even our spiritual heroes let us down, disappoint us, break our hearts. There will be times even our spiritual heroes need grace from us and need grace from others. They are human, which is exactly why we must not put our ultimate faith in them, but in God alone. Only God is worthy of our worship. Only God will never let us down. Second, we worship God alone because he is the creator. Paul tells the citizens of Lystra in verse 15 that they should turn to the living God who made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that are in them. Paul appeals here to what theologians call general revelation. Even those who have not yet heard of Jesus, like the people of Lystra, know intuitively in their hearts that there is a creator God who is worthy of their worship. Romans 1 says that all men know this by the things that are made, and because of that it says all men are without excuse. In other words, no one can honestly look at the world around us, the splendor and majesty of creation, and not recognize in their heart there is a God who made this. It is too intricate, it is too well-designed, it is too beautiful to come about by mere chance. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I would implore you, look at the world around you. Look at the beautiful fall colors. Look at the changing of the seasons. Look at the birds flying south. Look at the squirrels gathering their nuts in their trees. There is a God who designed and planned all of this and put it all into motion where it works beautifully. And that same God who created all of those things created you. And he has a plan and a purpose for you. And he has made a way for you to come to him. And that way is through his son, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and you will be with your creator forever and ever. Third, we worship God alone because he is good. Verse 16 says, even though the nations had walked in their own ways for generations, God was still good to them. We call this common grace. 
meaning that God is so good and so kind that even those who don't believe in him at all, indeed, even those who curse his name, still experience certain blessings that are common to all men simply because God loves and cares for his creation. Paul has some examples of this in verse 17, basically telling the people of Lystra, even though you don't know the true and living God, even though you worship false gods, God has been good to you. He's given you rain from heaven. He's made your land fruitful. He's filled your hearts with food and gladness. Paul is saying God is so good. He is so merciful. Worship him. Don't worship us. And yet, even after telling the people all of these reasons why they should worship God and not man, verse 18 says they could still scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. This just goes to remind us that men are spiritually blind. We can make the most rational case in the world to someone for why they should believe in God, for why they should follow Jesus, but unless God opens the eyes of their heart, they will continue in their sin and in their rebellion. The people at Lystra were so calloused spiritually and so consumed with their idolatry, they could not see or hear the truth. They were unwilling to hear it. Their hearts were hard. Oh, how I pray that that is not the case for you. I pray that your heart is soft to the Lord. I pray that your heart is receptive to him, for only he is worthy of your worship. Only he is worthy of your very life. Well, let's read our last two verses. As we're about to see things change drastically at Lystra once again. Lystra is an interesting place, I get the impression. Be careful that you don't get whiplash here as we read this. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Observation number three, keeping our focus on God will keep us from being influenced by the crowd. Now, this is crazy, and it shows the fickleness of human nature. The very same people who wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas just a short time ago now want to murder them. Remember, Paul and Barnabas have made a few enemies along the way on this missionary journey. They've been faithful to preach the gospel, and the reality is there will always be people who oppose the gospel being preached. But here's the thing. The enemies of the gospel didn't just want Paul and Barnabas out of their towns. They wanted them out of any town. They wanted them silenced permanently. This is cancel culture on steroids. And so they followed Paul and Barnabas all the way to Lystra. By the way, like 80 to 100 miles away, depending on which of those towns they lived in. That's a long way back then. It wasn't like they just went over to Nixa or something. I mean, like they went a long way. And it says they persuaded the multitudes to stone Paul and leave him for dead. Now, I ask you, how in the world does that happen? How could the citizens of Lystra do a 180 like this overnight? It just, it's not 
rational. It doesn't make sense. But here's what I want us to understand. When our focus is not on God, when we are not following him, when we are spiritually immature or, or worse, spiritually dead, we're prone to be swayed by any smooth talker that comes along. Consequently, whatever the crowd does, we just follow the crowd because we're not grounded in the faith. We're not firmly planted in the things of God. So, for example, in the people of Lystra's case, when someone comes along and says, Paul and Barnabas are gods, worship them. They're like, okay, sounds good to us. And the next day when someone else comes along and says, Paul and Barnabas are thugs, kill them. They say, okay, sounds good to us. When our focus is not on God, we are easily influenced. Ephesians 4 warns us against this very thing, saying we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. As we grow up in Christ, as our focus is on him, as he alone becomes the object of our worship, we are less susceptible to being influenced by the crowd and being manipulated by the enemies of God. Well, what happened to Paul? Verse 19 says, They did indeed stone him, and supposing him to be dead, they dragged him out of the city. Paul was no doubt unconscious, battered, and bloodied by the rocks that found their mark. But I love verse 20. When the disciples, that being the followers of Jesus there at Lystra, gathered around him, and you know when they gathered around him, they were just crying out to God on his behalf. What happened to Paul? He rose up. And it says he revived. And that's the craziest part to me. He went back into the city. You don't think that guy had some guts? He had some guts. But I love verse 20 because I love that picture. It's a great picture of the church. Life bloodies us sometimes. It batters us. It leaves us for dead. But when we have brothers and sisters in Christ around us, caring for us, supporting us, praying for us, it gives us the strength to get back up and to carry on. And goodness knows we all need that. Now, at this point, it would have been really easy for Paul just to quit to call it good and, and go home, but he didn't do that. As we said, the text says he went back into Lystra. We assume he spent the night there. Probably didn't tell a lot of people he was in town, I'm guessing. But the next day, he and Barnabas moved on to the next town, which was Derby, just a few miles over, to begin preaching the gospel there. And you know, the same is true for us. We can't quit. If we get knocked down, we got to get back up. If God calls us to stay, we stay. If God calls us to go, we go. Either way, we keep serving the Lord. We keep sharing the gospel. We keep making disciples. We keep worshiping God and God alone. He alone is worthy of our praise. As we come to a time of response this morning, what I hope that we've seen today, what I hope that we've taken to heart, is that we are to worship God and not man. That only God is worthy of our worship. Furthermore, if we're to avoid being influenced by the crowd, we have to keep our eyes on God. 
How about you? Are you trusting in God and in him alone? As you've listened to the sermon this morning, has the Holy Spirit revealed to you something or someone that you have elevated to the place of a God or an idol in your life? If so, I would encourage you to confess that to the Lord today. First of all, confess it. Secondly, repent of your idolatry and put your faith fully in him. Our God is merciful. He will forgive you. He will help you going forward. I'd also ask this morning, is there anyone here who's ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin and to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Do you need to follow the Lord in baptism? Is he leading you to unite with this church in membership? We're going to give you an opportunity now to respond to any of these things that the Holy Spirit may be calling you to do this morning. I'm going to ask the musicians, if they would, to come up to the platform during this time. And we're going to have a closing song here in just a moment. I'll be standing here at the front of the room. If you're here today and you're ready to become a Christian or make any public decision for the Lord, or you just want to come pray about some aspect of the sermon that God's dealing with you this morning. That's what this time is for, for you to respond and do business with God as he leads you to do that.